Welcome to Rehash. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rehash, a Web3 podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen. And today we're speaking with Sari Azut, founder of Startupy, about the different models for online knowledge share that we've seen to date, how big of a role humans should play in curating content online, and what a decentralized search engine might look like. Startupy is a human-curated search and discovery engine for the internet's best knowledge. Sari was nominated by me, Diana Chen, and voted onto the podcast by Triumph, LDF, Ninty Nick, and myself. Before we dive into our conversation, here's a quick word from the Web3 projects that helped make the season possible. Social media wasn't designed for ads and algorithms. It was made for people. And at Lens Protocol, we're putting people back in control. We're not looking for users' data. We're here to build a community of collaborators, builders, artists, and dreamers ready to unlock a new world of social media. This isn't just an app. It's a flourishing ecosystem of platforms and experiences owned and operated by the developers and creators who are bringing it to life. In the Lensverse, you don't just own your content. You own everything. Your data, your connections, the value you bring to the table. It all stays in your possession, exactly where it should be. As a creator, the Lens ecosystem offers a new set of tools for connecting with your audience. Your data is truly portable and belongs to you. Post once and distribute everywhere in the Lensverse. You can even take your followers with you from app to app. As a developer, you can skip right past building the base layers and scaling your users by plugging your new app directly into Lens's existing infrastructure and community. So whether you create with a brush or a camera, sound waves or lines of code, it's time you got your due. Come create the future of social media with us on Lens Protocol. Lens is the last social media handle you'll ever need. Have you seen how epic Ambire Wallet is? How epic it is? Yeah. Cue the music. Ambire is a Web3 wallet that makes crypto self-custody easy and secure for everyone. Instead of relying on clunky seed phrases, you can create an account with the hardware wallet or username and password, secure it with two-factor authentication, and regain access with Ambire's cloud recovery. Need to pay out some contributors or execute a bunch of trades? No problem, chief. Queue up as many transactions as you want, and when you're ready, execute the entire batch at the same time, paying gas only once. You can even prepay for gas with stable coins or Ambire's native wallet token, which will get you some cash back. Without ever leaving the Ambire interface, you can manage assets from over a dozen chains, safely migrate them with Ambire's built-in bridge, and seamlessly interact with dApps like Uniswap, Aave, and Snapshot, all within the same transaction. Plus, Ambire is constantly growing their dApp catalog with trusted partners and collaborating with builders who want to establish the new standard for smart contract wallets. So, pretty epic, huh? Yeah, I already know all that though. I've had an Ambire wallet for months. And you didn't tell me? You never asked. To get involved and truly own your assets, go to ambire.com. How was your day? Bad. What happened? I bought some NFTs and then they just disappeared. Sounds like your NFT creator should have used NFT.storage. NFT.what? NFT.storage. Come on, I'll show you. With NFT.storage, anyone can easily upload their NFT data to a decentralized and reliable storage network completely for free. Wow. How does it work? Well, 
Instead of relying on centralized and impermanent storage solutions, NFT.Storage uploads your files to IPFS and Filecoin. These are powerful peer-to-peer -peer networks that are made for the decentralized web. Thanks to IPFS's unique storage system, you can be confident that once your files are uploaded, they'll be accessible from anywhere in the world for as long as you'd like. They're already trusted by some of the biggest names in Web3, like OpenSea, Magic Eden, and Rarible. By adding files to these networks for free, NFT.Storage is helping to turn proper NFT data management into a public good. This will ensure that NFTs will remain accessible and secure in the long run, so you won't get rugged again. Gee, so I just upload my files and NFT.Storage will take care of the rest? Now you're getting it! Go to NFT.Storage today to upload some NFT data of your own, for free! And be sure to follow NFT.Storage on Twitter, at NFTDOTStorage. So without further ado, here is our guest, Sari. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thank you so much for having me, Diana. Excited to be here. I'm super excited to talk to you. We've had conversations in the past about curating content online and about what decentralized search might look like. And I'm so curious to hear your thoughts again, maybe a year or so later since we've last you know, had a conversation on this topic. So I'm so happy you're here today. And there's so much to cover. So let's just go ahead and dive right on in. The first thing I want to talk to you about is online knowledge share. It's a very broad topic. So I, I just want to start from sort of the past and how we got here. So let's Go all the way back to when online knowledge share first became a thing. Uh, and I would say that was probably back in 1989 with the creation of the World Wide Web by Tim Berners-Lee. So let's start there and sort of like go through history and go through some of those big milestones that we hit. And I, I'd love to just get your thoughts on each of these and sort of the role that they've played in getting us to where we are today. And if you have any thoughts on, you know, was this a good thing, a positive thing, a negative thing, uh, somewhere in between, any kind of commentary you want to share, I'd love to hear that. So, <laughs> all right, this is a huge topic, but let's dive into it. So, huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think, all right, it's interesting that, you know, of course you mentioned like 1989, Tim Berners-Lee, but even just like to put things in more historical context and, you know, just to understand the value to organizing information you know, like many hundreds of years ago, information was passed down orally. You had no way of knowing what existed, what thoughts people had, what was out there. Then, you know, you had like projects like the Library of Alexandria, I think it was around like 300 BC or something. And it wasn't the first library, but it was like, you know, probably the most ambitious project. And that's why it was notable. And then of course, like, when the internet came around, because Alexandria, you you know, you saw that it became a flourishing place, the intellectual capital of the world. I forget like what the discoveries and inventions that came out of it, but there's a clear value to that having this library, what that did and how that un unleashed people, but it was still sort of bundled with the geography. Now what's interesting is like once the internet came around, you started to see, oh, you know, the knowledge that you have access to is not necessarily tied to where you are geographically. Uh, I think in the early days of the internet, it was still very much like the skeuomorphic days where like the New York Times would have their print articles, digital, and it was, you know, in some ways like the nostalgia days where we didn't really realize what, you know, putting all this stuff in feeds and algorithms would do. And then of course there are forums and, you know, it was fairly like decentralized, of course, depending on what definition of decentralized you use, but there were no like big centralized parties, like intermediating our relationship to content online. And of course that began to change when you had, when, with the rise of Google and social media and, you know, Wikipedia and, 
you know, of course, each of these models for knowledge sharing is very different. So Wikipedia, you know, it's, I believe that like the internet should look more uh, like Wikipedia. So in, in some ways, uh, we could put that, um, that example on the side. But, you know, if you think about like the history of the internet, it's really the history of making the cost of publishing zero. I think what's unique or what I would want to emphasize in this question of knowledge sharing is not just like how we share knowledge, which of course has changed. We now, you know, we now have TikTok and Twitter and Instagram, but it, I very much subscribe to Marshall McLuhan's The Medium is the Message, which basically the theory there is that the mediums that we use to share knowledge don't just alter the way we share knowledge, they also change what knowledge gets shared in the first place. And I think that's really, really important as, as we talk about a more human internet, and I'm sure we'll come back to this, but you know, when you think about Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, they have a lot of things baked into them that impact the things that we share. So for example, everything is has a number of likes attached to it. So I would argue that that makes these networks more about performance than about communication. So little things like that, I think really have affected the trajectory of knowledge sharing online. When I mentioned earlier that the internet should be more like Wikipedia, a lot of those like incentives for performance aren't built in in the same way. And I think a lot of the reason I believe that we are drowning in information, but starved for knowledge is largely a result of the way that these platforms that mediate our relationship to the internet are designed. Yeah, I, I think the biggest criticism to Wiki, Wiki is probably just that the information on Wiki is sometimes not accurate or or not verified and not trustworthy. You know, it's, it's for a while people were kind of joking, "Oh, where did you get that information from? Do you like Wikipedia it?" And uh, so that's kind of you know the biggest criticism I've heard for Wikipedia. But I do think that it's it is difficult to focus on this communication piece and this knowledge share piece without having any sort of incentive mechanisms like you know, the likes or the, the social uh, verification, not that social verification is, is foolproof, because as we've seen, you know, the fake news can make its rounds in, in the mainstream pretty easily as well. But I, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, like with regards to that Wikipedia piece specifically, since you called that out as like, this is what the internet should look like. Do you have any hesitations about, you know, like using that Wikipedia model? And what would you want to see changed about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think that the question of misinformation and all of that stuff, like it's in some ways, like I'm not an expert in this, but I think it's an intractable problem in the sense that I, I don't think it's unique to the internet. I think the speed at which misinformation gets spread is unique to the internet. But, you know, before the internet and rumors and harassment and all this stuff, like that, that's been like an issue forever. And you know, I actually, I read a piece recently by Noah Smith, and I think it was called something like the internet wants to be more fragmented. And basically, like the basic argument was that we are not born to live in this global hive mind where we have to bring like groups of people from very different, like, you know, mindsets and social and cultural contexts and like have them agree. Uh, and that the early days of the internet, when you had forums, like, they worked because it sort of mimics uh, more closely the way that people actually like interact in real life, which is like, 
you know, social groups exclude people who don't fit in. Right. And like the work of like policing is done by moderators who like, you know, it's a labor of love by these community members. And if you don't like a forum, you just walk away. And so I think a lot of these problems are a result of like just this, I wouldn't call it failed experiment because I think there's, you know, I'm like careful about the binaries here because I think there's been a lot of value uh, to having these like centralized and aggregated spaces. But I think a lot has been lost as well. Um, So, you know, I don't know that like, misinformation. I think the truth has always been pretty gray and it's amplified when you put everybody in one town square, right? I think Wikipedia, I'm not an expert, but I I believe that Wikipedia, at least like the way that like anyone can come in and edit and suggest. And so there is this like canonical page that is constantly like up for revision. And, you know, while the model is imperfect, in some ways, I find it astonishing that we were able to coordinate humans um, to create something like that, especially because there is no financial incentive. So, you know, as flawed as it is, I find it to be like an incredible human accomplishment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, going back to something you said earlier about sort of this like centralized versus decentralized piece and how the internet at its origin was meant to be, you know, this more decentralized model, this more open source model. When we look back over the last few decades since the internet became a thing, we see that there's kind of this push and pull between centralized and decentralized before between open source and closed between all of these apps. So, you know, it started out kind of decentralized with these online bulletin boards, forums, where you can kind of just enter and leave as you please, if you like the forum or not. And then we sort of shift into this like social media space where it's much more centralized, it's much more controlled. But at the same time, we're also seeing, you know, open source software, online communities around open source software, such as GitHub and Stack Overflow, that are kind of rising up around the same time that social media did, and sort of has this like totally different mentality as social media. And then, you know, later on, we kind of like have also forums like Reddit and Quora, which also are a bit, you know, kind of like brings us back to the early days of those like message boards, bulletin boards that we had in the the 90s and uh, the early 2000s. And then also at the same time, these like online learning platforms, these MOOCs like Coursera and Udemy, which spread, you know, you can learn, get an education, you can learn about a certain topic from anywhere in the world from the comfort of your own home. How, how, what do you make of this it's almost like dual progression of more centralized learning platforms versus decentralized learning platforms? Because I don't really know what to make of it personally. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the classic like bundle and bundle. So if you think about centralization, like I, I personally, I think another sort of like way to think about it is is through the lens of aggregation, right? So, you know, the reason it's a lot more practical to index the internet, like using one search bar so that you can, you know, I don't know, you want to look at the menu for your, the restaurant you're going to tonight or find like Google is like one search bar for the whole web. It's, you know, I, I think initially Google was not even going to be ad-based. It was going to, their business model was meant to be like licensing information. So there is like a very clear sort of utility to having a lot of these things aggregated in one single place. And similarly with Instagram, you don't want to have to go to like your, you know, like all of your friends, like blog posts to see their images. Like, you know, there is a, a benefit to aggregation. I think that 
the problem is that the internet, you know, initially, like when a lot of these platforms came up, there was this like narrative around like democratization of access and democratization of information. And, you know, a few years later, when these companies became behemoths and had more power than, you know, many of the world's governments combined, then we started to be like, oh, maybe this narrative of democratized access and information doesn't really hold. So I think a lot of the the question is a question of power. It's like we've you know, in some ways, like we went from a world where the gatekeepers of media were all of these like big media companies, whether it was like Fox or CNN or whatever. And now we have like a new uh, intermediary. They're just like a lot more powerful. And so, you know, we could talk about like platforms versus protocols and a lot of the new models that are emerging uh, as we continue to learn what's worked and what hasn't. I think the, the thing that that worries me and and that I think is like wrong about the internet is how everything sort of looks the same in the sense that in a world that is ad-based, I think I opened like Pinterest, TikTok, Spotify now, uh, they all have like, have stories. Twitter, I think got rid of fleets, but they're all so similar. It's like, it's there, there's like this race to the bottom. And you mentioned GitHub and Stack Overflow. And I, I think that those uh, examples offer b- different metaphors for information. So I think if, if you think like truth should follow more of a GitHub model. So as soon as something is factually wrong, imagine if somebody could come in, easily correct it, make it visible to everyone. Uh, and so I just think that the greatest minds of our generation are thinking about how to get us to click more and spend more time on these sites versus getting us to uh, generate more consensus on truth. And so I guess like my biggest critique of this stuff is that, you know, yes, the stack overflows, whatever, like they're on the edges it's great, but the big intermediaries of information are just 100% optimizing for us continuing to, to scroll versus optimizing for the true sort of uh, human qualities such as learning, connection, and whatnot. Right. So let's talk more about one of those big intermediaries, Google. We've brought it up already. Uh, Google is, you know, this is not like a stat I've pulled, but I'm sure it's like number one way people get information online is anything that, that comes to mind, though most people will hit Google and ask the question on Google and find their answer, which is great. But we know that there are also a lot of problems with Google with tracking our data, with, you know, the way that they their algorithm works and stuff like that. Can you first just help us level set by explaining a little bit about some of those issues that we're seeing with Google that we maybe want to fix? Yeah, for sure. I mean, my like I think my biggest issue with Google is that, you know, any network is only as good as people's inability to game the system, right? And so with Google, everything becomes about gaming the system to rank higher in search results. And what that's meant is that, you know, if you, Diana, write an incredible essay or, you know, post on your blog about something, but you don't spend a ton of time optimizing for SEO, you just don't stand the light of day. And for me, the most interesting stuff on the internet is happening in these like chaotic, beautifully human, buried corners of the web that nobody is indexing in interesting ways. And so, you know, I don't want to like negate the astonished accomplishment that is like, you know, indexing the entirety of the web and, you know, even just like programmatic advertising, which you could argue is like the original sin of the internet is from an engineering perspective, an incredible feat. I think that if I, you know, if I Google like how to achieve my goals, like how to find meaning, how to like all of these like niche queries, you're just going to find a ton of junk. 
on Google. And I want to find the interesting perspectives by real people. And I just, you know, I just think that in a system that is optimized for SEO, that will, that will never happen. And so I don't think like, I don't think that the answer is necessarily replacing Google. I think it's giving people more choice about how and where to access information. Okay, so talk a little bit more about what that looks like in practice, because I've tried imagining a future of decentralized search. And I think my brain, you know, immediately goes to like a skeuomorphic web three version of Google. And that may not be the right way to think about it. I think, you know, would you say that the, the, the right way or maybe like one productive way of thinking about decentralized search is actually to think about what a decentralized curation of content would look like from the human side? Yeah. So I, I've spent a lot of time on this question and I'm happy to just like share all of my learnings, but you know, it's interesting that when I, so I, you know, my, my sort of history or, or context, personal story on curation is I've always been obsessed with hanging out at the edges of the internet and curating that stuff initially for all, my own personal use. I just find that the internet is more beautiful and exciting when you consciously curate it and collect it versus mindlessly consume it. So Every time I'd find something interesting on the internet, I'd add it to my own personal repository. And, you know, it just changed my relationship to the internet in a really great way because I'm, I, you know, because I have this like beautiful sort of like vessel, um, I'm, I'm just like, it's making my content consumption a lot more conscious. So, you know, but this was still very much a private activity, but the more this thing grew, the more I thought, okay, this is something that more people should have access to. And the more people should be able to contribute to, uh, because if we manage to scale this, then this is essentially a human curated search engine. Right. And so as I thought this through my sort of mind instantly went to incentives, like everything, you know, the world is governed by incentives. Tell me the incentive and I'll tell you the outcome. And so, you know, initially as when I was building startup, I thought, okay, how, you know, how do we incentivize people to contribute? And this is where I went like deep into web three, just like as a, as a, as a scholar, just trying to understand it. Not really, um, you know, I, I came in with just like a lot of open-mindedness, but, you know, in theory, you could incentivize people to contribute to this graph, you know, and, and money could flow towards like people that were producing value versus uh, to the centralized um, intermediary, then there would be something there. I think that in practice, I guess there's a, there's still, there's a very big gap between theory and practice when it comes to token mediated networks, or, you know, even take the token aside, any, any sort of situation where financial incentives coexist with intrinsic incentives, it's just extremely tricky. What we found as we seeded this community is that the most valuable contributors were not motivated for financial reasons, and that designing a system that would, that would compensate people for their work was very hard to do in practice without it uh, without it leading to some of the same mistakes that were made that have allowed for this like gaming of SEO that we saw. So it doesn't, you know, so I think that when you think about decentralization, there are many ways to think about it. One is decentralized ownership. You know, you think about like financial intermediaries and, you know, giving financial incentives to the platform participants. That's one piece of it. I think the other piece of it that is perhaps more validated and we're seeing that play out now with Blue Sky and Twitter is the platform versus protocol. So, you know, Blue Sky is not, is not giving me money for sending out posts or anything like that. But um, there is this element of anyone in theory could go and create their own client. And so I think that, you know, 
decentralization is like this huge term that can mean so many different things. I personally hit a wall when it comes to like just human behavior and incentive design of these networks. Um, I still think the protocol piece is interesting. I, I will say the conclusion, if I had to like sum it up, is that decentralization and or having a token does not absolve you from the responsibility of building something people want. And so, you know, when we think about what we are building, sure, the end game can be a human curated search engine, but the reason people use it is because it, like what we're building is going to be a fantastic tool to collect and connect all of the insights you find interesting online and stitch it together with other people's brains. So it's this like networked way of building a second brain. Sure, like the end goal is still the same, but the way to get there is by building a product that has a ton of utility versus, you know, offering financial incentives and things like that, that, you know, I, I just think that um, can be band-aid solutions for actually building something people want. Yeah, I, I think the human curation piece is, is super interesting. And I, I have a few follow-up questions to that. I think the the first is with regards to scale, right? So people like you, like you mentioned, you, you you like to curate your own content. You know, you've been doing this for a long time. I'm the same way. If I if I find an article that I find to be useful or helpful, I just add it to my notes app on my phone. But nobody has access to my notes app on my phone except for me. So that information doesn't get shared. And like you like you were saying, how awesome would it be? You know, how much more knowledge and insight could we have if I had access to your notes app and you had access to mine and we had access to all the other people out there who do the same thing we do and collect their own little tidbits of knowledge and information. But then I think the question is, you know, is that scalable? Like how many people are actually doing that out there and how many people are doing it in a similar way, right? So like, what if I looked at your notes app and I thought, Oh, this is so great. I love this content that Sari is collecting. But then you look at my notes app and you're like, wow, this is like really shit content actually. And like, I can't believe this is the stuff that she finds to be insightful. Then you, you don't want to follow me anymore. But if we're curating content on the same platform, I guess I'm just curious, like, how do you maintain that level of quality that, you know, how do you A, determine the level of quality <laughs> that people want to see? And how do you, how do you B, maintain that level once you determine what that is? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the sort of quality stuff is not too different from what other platforms have done. So there's, you know, there's a lot of junk on, you know, whatever, Pinterest or Instagram or whatever, but there are tools to, you know, in each platform with their own sort of like different incentive, but to try to pull the best content to to the top. So I don't think that we need to do anything radically different. I think that, you know, for us, like when we think about what we're building, the number of connections is a really interesting proxy for quality. So there's this given piece, Diana connected it to her library. I connected it to mine. If it's in a bunch of people's libraries, that's a pretty decent proxy for quality. It's sort of like what Google did with PageRank, but based on like people's human curated libraries. So, so I think there are a lot of effective ways um, to deal with the quality issue um, that, you know, that, that, that are not necessarily unique to us. I think the scale question is really interesting because of course, like there's just no way that, that we can index the entirety of the web. And, you know, I think the thing that I always go back to, and this also ties into business model is we're not optimizing for scale. We're optimizing for resonance. And, and, you know, I, I do think that if we, uh, like my, my aspiration is to build the first social tool powered by a freemium model, not an advertising model. And so 
you know, if you have this like freemium model where people fall in love and then pay, there's this question of like, what, what do you charge for? And so if you charge for the tool, which is the supply side, then the tool has to be really good. Uh, if you charge for the demand, like the content, then, you know, scale is really important. So, so I do think that I, I'm not too concerned right now about covering every corner of content. I think that the value proposition of a human curated search engine is precisely like the opposite of like the index everything. I think that, you know, over time, as more people contribute to this, then, you know, because the, the reality is that I don't expect a lot of people's queries to begin on Startupy. I expect a lot of people's queries to begin on Google because we're not going to change behavior overnight. Uh, but if we can, you know, if, if over time, like we can rank high across a lot of these topics, then, you know, it, it, I, I sort of, the way I look at it is like, we are, this is a multi-decade project for us. And so I'm not concerned about scale. I'm concerned about resonance and setting the culture and the tone and the vibe for the kind of internet we want to have and just building a fantastic tool that will incentivize people to want to share their notes and links and insights on this platform. And, you know, I think that that's been a, a learning where I think initially I thought that the incentive would be sort of financial and maybe like, you know, an NFT ownership. And, you know, I think those, those things can help, but they don't absolve you of the responsibility to build a great product. Yeah, totally. So, okay, we, we've mentioned Startupy a lot already. I want to take a step back and tell people what Startupy is for people who aren't familiar. So tell us, you know, what is the, what does the current evolution of Startupy look like as, as a platform? And people can already use this. And so, so people can go on to Startupy world and already look at the content that's been curated there. But I'm, I'm curious just, you know, to hear from you, the 30,000 foot level of what Startupy is, how you guys pick your curators, how the content is curated, all that good stuff. Yeah, for sure. So lots to share there. So basically, I mean, Startupy is a community of people that are curating and interconnecting incredible content on the web. Uh, it was basically born off of this uh, obsession with curating content and wanting to extend what I was doing personally um, and do that more communal in a more communal way. Uh, and I think what we learned along the way is that like people, like we had tapped into the zeitgeist for sure in the sense that People want curated content, no matter what, in a world where like, you know, AI can give us all this, like, we still want to see how people like the personal side of information, what does Diana resonate with? How is she connecting these things? And of course, like AI can augment some of that, but it will never truly replace the value of tying information to identity and humans and all this stuff. And so we started off with this like very humble attempt at building a community that was like finding the needle in the haystack and indexing in this interface that is searchable and available for others. I think the thing that we've been like relentlessly focused for the last six months is taking everything we learned in the process of building this community to build what we think is going to be a world-class tool that essentially allows you to build your second brain, but in a more networked way. And what I mean by that is you will still have the same utility of tools that allow you to, you know, take notes, store links, um, images, quotes, whatever on the internet, but you build this library inside of a living breathing network where your ideas can bump into others, where you can share uh, your library. We actually, we love the metaphor of trails to describe what we're building because a trail is something that is very useful for you, 
It makes your personal sort of internet more generative, more useful, more alive, but it's also something you leave behind for others, giving them like jumping off points to research and wander and create their own trails. And so I think that the thing we've been obsessing over is if we manage to create a tool that is equal parts personal and communal, meaning there is a lot of utility for you, but it's built inside this living network, then over time, this tool can become a human curated search engine because it is the home for a lot of people's sort of most interesting thoughts, links, and sparks of inspiration, and it becomes searchable. And so my sort of thesis continues to be that a lot of this knowledge is stuck in single player tools. And, you know, meanwhile, like a lot of the web is deteriorating in quality and it's all sort of a lot of garbage and SEO optimized. And, you know, I think we need a lot of choice, as I said earlier, that the, yeah, there is like room for this more authoritative, um, scalable internet, but there's also room for this more beautifully human and chaotic and personal um, internet. And so, you know, we, we've been just like obsessing over what that looks like and you know, I'm finally now emerging from the from the rabbit hole and really proud of, I think, um, where where we landed, because I think if Startupy was very focused on seeding the early community, I think Sublime, which is the evolution of Startupy, is very focused on actually building a product that actually like serves this mission really well. Yeah. So I took a look at Startupy just last night as I was preparing for this interview. And the content I found there was actually super insightful. Like there, there were, I started just going through and flagging all these, like copying all these links to articles that were curated there and adding it to my notes app, like how I carry content for myself. And then I was like, I just need to come back to this one day and like read all of it because I found myself like copying and pasting every single link on there into my notes app. So I'm curious, and I saw there was a link too to all the curators that you have on Startupy. How do you go about finding these curators and how do you go about vetting the curators that you want to uh, have a say and what content shows up on Startupy? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the who curates the curators is obviously an important question. I think the answer thus far is that the curators have found us. I think we've tried to... Um, you know, our approach has been, you know, put a manifesto out, share your vision of the internet with the world. And, uh, you know, that's been sort of like a magnet for attracting the kinds of people. And when we ask them, like, why do you want to be a part of startup? It's always like, we're just drawn to the mission. So, so it's been, it's self-selected for high quality people, just given the size. It's like a, you know, we, our community of curators is now just over 500, although the broader startup um, user base is about 30,000 people. And, you know, I, I do think that the who curates the curators, it's like it shouldn't it shouldn't be a decision that is on us. I believe and with Sublime, when we launch, anyone can create and curate content. And it's sort of up to the network and to, and to people to have a choice of deciding who they follow. And so, yeah, I think this is like a, a obviously a big, important question on the Internet right now. You have algorithmic curation where, you know, on TikTok anyone can post on TikTok, but there's an algorithm that decides like who they actually amplify. And so in some ways it's, that's algorithmic curation. There's the Substack model where, you know, it's 100% up to you, although they're introducing some sort of uh, algorithms, but, um, but it's really like up to you to decide who to trust. So the, the platform sort of absolves itself of the responsibility of deciding like, you know, or censorship and, and, you know, I, I sort of lean into I don't think it's healthy for a society where networks are making a lot of these important sort of like censorship and moderation decisions. I think that a lot of this power uh, should be in the hands of users over time. I think the challenge is that people are like humans are complex. We want everything. We want simple to use products. 
but we want to have governance over them. But then when push comes to shove, we don't have time to govern these platforms. And so it's tricky. And I think that, you know, we're still sort of like learning our, our way, at, I think, generally on the internet, um, as far as as far as best practices. But but I do think a lot of a lot of my time has gone into studying what's gone well and what hasn't when it comes to the properties of a lot of these sort of internet products. So for example, once you make vanity metrics, you know, a big part of it and or you know, what is like the impact of engagement based business models on the kinds of content that gets shared. And so I, I think that I'm excited about a new wave of products that just has a clear understanding of how a lot of the product decisions that were made in the early internet panned out. Even like I remember I, I think back to Jack Dorsey, um, founder of Twitter, he had an interview uh, a few years back where he said that if he could do anything differently, he would have hired a game designer because they he didn't know when they introduced the quote retweet button, what that would do to the product. I mean, we're humans making decisions with imperfect information. And so, you know, a lot of these things, I don't think they come from a place of evil. I think they just come from a place of like limited understanding. Yeah, absolutely. So to me, it sounds like Sublime, which is uh, the evolution of Startupy. It, it's the same thing as Startupy, but it's what you guys are launching, I think, in June, right? So maybe a month or so down the line. It sounds to me what Sublime is using, the model that Sublime is using, is kind of a mix of this algorithmic model and a purely like human curated model. So on the one hand, if I want to follow people, I can follow people and I can have, you know, curate my own home feed to only the people that I want to follow. But on the other hand, there is also maybe another home feed where I can, or another feed where I can go and look at all the algorithm, algorithmic curated content that startup or that sublime curated is that right yeah so everything on sublime is added by people so meaning like nothing i guess much like other ugc platforms it's not like we're passively scraping the web and indexing every every site so everything belongs uh, or can be ultimately tracked to somebody adding it to their own personal library there is a follow uh, model there is like a basic explore model we lean very heavily into search. But but yes, fundamentally, um, that is the model. I think that, you know, what we aspire to is to combine the sort of focus and utility of a productivity tool with the sense of aliveness of a social network. So uh, I think earlier I said that the problem with social networks is that they've become more sort of like places to perform than they are places to communicate. And so the incentive, like, you don't like you don't tweet something unless you think it's going to resonate with your audience. You're sort of like performing for an audience. I think with Sublime, the metaphor is slightly different. The idea is that you are sort of like building an archive for yourself, but leaving it behind for others in case they resonate. And so I think to really nail that, it necessitates a degree of like remove the vanity metrics and just like make sure that the mechanics like remove all of the like performative mechanics, um, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then with regards to the search model, then if say I go and I search for something kind of, you know, very broad and vague, like let's say I search how to decide what to do with my life on Startup And there are 20 different articles that, that people have curated on Startup that address this topic. How does Startup then decide which of these to show at the top of the search versus at the bottom? Totally. So I think that like what we are developing is like our, our version of, of PageRank is based on metrics that are 
unique to Sublime. So in our case, uh, if a given uh, article is in a lot of people's libraries, then that is very relevant to our system. And so, you know, in some ways, like you could argue that that can be gamed, but I think it can be gamed far less than SEO in the sense that if you wanted to make your article appear at the top of Sublime, I mean, there are more metrics other than the number of connections, but you'd have to create like 25 accounts and like you'd, you know, you'd be flagged. And so, you know, because it's tied to a human identity, it's slightly different. Um, And the other piece of it is that like, it is, it is going to be a freemium model. So, which I think hasn't been tried before as much in, in social, in the sense that we win when we build a tool that is so useful for you that, um, you know, it's just like, it changes the, the nature of the mechanics. But to be clear, like we are building this like human page rank. Gotcha. With regards to the content that's curated on Startupy, I think at first glance, I only noticed written content. Is that something that you guys want to keep at with Sublime? Is it's only open to written content or are you op- also open to multimedia videos, podcasts, other types of content? Oh my gosh. Yes. That's a big flaw of the current uh, startup site. Uh, we're super excited when we unveil Sublime. It's just been very, very thoughtfully just designed to support multimedia curation. Amazing. And is it going to be focused mostly on long form content, which is what I noticed is currently, or will it be focused on like the shorter, the YouTube shorts, the TikTok style videos, things like that? Because as we know, like, I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges I think with knowledge share today is that people's attention span has become so short. And so the content that I personally find to be most useful is long form content. But I think, you know, it's just so much more difficult in this day and age to even get people's attention for long enough to get them to consume that long form content. Yeah, I mean, it would be very like, idealistic of me to think that we can change the shortening attention spans. The reality is that we do think about how to make the atomic unit, the insight, right? Because of course, you could share an article. If you see that article in a feed, it might take you 20 minutes to read that article. And so I don't think that providing a long list of links is particularly helpful in most cases. Like people just want the insights quickly. And I think that that's the reason we've gravitated towards these products that we just like have become these like lab rats that are constantly like, you know, pressing levers to get these like tiny pellets of intellectual or social nourishment. And I think that if we can do that with more sort of intellectually nourishing content, like that is what we're optimizing for. So to be clear on Sublime, we emphasize like highlights, like as we redesigned the interface, what we've done is like, because Sublime is all about um, collecting content and connecting it to different sort of ideas. Uh, we've made the atomic unit of like the insight to the highlight, you know, the image, whatever, remixable on its own so that the insight can travel and be connected to different sort of like nodes within the network. So I like 100% agree that attention spans are shortening. Uh, We can't fight that. I do think, though, that if you think about the architecture of Sublime, so there's no question that the internet is deteriorating our capacity for deep thinking. I think that, you know, deep thought requires just like sustained solitude. And I remember like back in the day when like, when I used to tweet a lot and I'd have a tweet go viral, I would just like spend the day like refreshing my Twitter. I was like, how do people go viral every day? This is crazy. And so with Sublime, it's, you know, every, 
in the same way that like every social network that now looks the same has likes and comments and bookmarks and views, like on Sublime, you have a number of connections. Uh, and so the difference there is that that is more conducive to deep thought because you're not just seeing a, a number that, you know, sort of doesn't mean anything, but the, the connections that you see actually pull you further down the rabbit hole and expose you to different perspectives of the same topic. Because the issue with Twitter is that, you know, you are, you know, you see one tweet about, uh, you know, Trump and another tweet about Ukraine and another tweet about some new startup and another, and, you know, our, our brains are just not equipped to, to context shift in this way. And so, you know, I, I have like just a lot of like views on how to just make small design changes that actually seem small, but actually change the nature of the way people communicate on these platforms. I love that. I agree with all of that. It's so hard to focus and think on the internet nowadays because of all the, it's just like the information is firing at you from all angles and you don't even know what to do with it because like you said, our brains aren't programmed to context switch so fast from across vastly different topics, right? And it's like one second, I'm like seeing stuff on crypto Twitter about like ZK Sync and I'm like, oh, that looks so cool. I should research this. And then I scroll like a little bit more and I see another tweet about decentralized search and I'm like, oh, but that's so cool too. And I go on a rabbit hole about this. And then at, at the end of the day, like I've learned absolutely nothing. I've just like thought, you know, for three seconds about 20 different topics. A hundred percent. And so I, and, but, but at the same time, uh, you know, when I think that the center for humane technology did the study on what tools, um, or apps make people feel good. And a lot of the ones that make people feel good are, you know, personal apps, whether it was like, I think it was Evernote and Calm. And then a lot of the stuff that made us feel bad were these multiplayer social apps. And I actually think the wrong takeaway is that social apps are bad. I think that the right takeaway is that we've designed social apps to help us behave in certain ways that are that are conducive to performance and not can, like think about it this way when I write an article on my Substack or whatever like to me the metric of success is how many interesting conversations do I have as a result of that it has nothing to do with how many likes it has or how many comments it gets or, you know, those are all just like cheap metrics. Because if I connect with one interesting person as a result of that, that either ends up becoming my friend or investing in my company or, you know, just like shedding light on some unique insight, that is really valuable. But I think that these, so, which means that if we're just in private silos, we are like losing out on those opportunities. But these social products, unless you're just like really good at ignoring the distractions, they are not conducive to like meaning making and connections because it's it's so performative. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's such a key point. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about startup is I, I think I found this on your Twitter bio is this Ask Sorry page. So the idea behind this is that any person um, and you've got one Ask Sorry, it's basically somebody can search for anything on this Ask Sorry page and go into your brain uh, about, you know, like this topic, whatever they want to search for. So if I wanted to search for, you know, how do I figure out what to do with my life? I could go on Ask Sorry and search that. And if you've curated any articles or content on this topic or thought about it in any way, I could see the content that you've curated on it. So say I think, you know, I'm like, sorry, has really got her life figured out. Like she must really know what to do with her life. And I want to know how she figured that out. So I'm going to go on her page and search this and get access to her knowledge base. Is this a product that 
will also be transferred into Sublime. Um, and uh, talk a little bit more about that. Like, tell me too, if I'm off on it, this has just been my observation from looking at one link on it, but totally. talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm super glad you asked. So, I mean, it's interesting that a lot of what we've seen happen with AI allows us to do things with a few API calls that, you know, two years ago would have been, would have required like a full team of machine learning engineers. So um, that, that ask sorry uh, URL in my Twitter bio is an example of basically me taking um, every article link that I've curated along with my highlights on them, putting them in one sort of uh, basically using, uh, I'm getting a little bit technical here, but using OpenAI's embeddings. And essentially what that does is without using keywords, using just like semantic natural language search, it'll show you if you type in a question, like, what do I want to do with my life? What else has Sari ad curated uh, that is related to this topic? Um, and it just uses like large language models, like OpenAI and Hugging Face. And so that was an experiment. It worked really well. And so Sublime, it's definitely going to be intelligent. We are going to incorporate natural language search. We're going to incorporate semantic similarity. You should be able to query your second brain in natural language. But I think more interestingly, if you sort of take a step back and you look at ChatGPT and some of these other tools, they're intelligent, but they lack context, uh, your personal context, and they lack sort of like awareness of your own knowledge. But if you think about if you like somebody like me that has actually cultivated this repository over the years, I could very easily spin up a version of ChatGPT where I am talking to my own thoughts. And I could say, you know what? I am going to write a manifesto for Sublime, tap into everything that I've curated on this collection and help me write the manifesto. So I can be assisted by AI but it's still using like my own context. Uh, and so we very much like believe that, you know, there's like a by AI and there's a with AI. I think that AI is an augmented thinking partner is really interesting. And uh, I hope that that sort of like camp of empowering humans becomes like just much more prevalent than the, you know, like just fakery and everything by AI and like humans are no longer needed. But anyway, all this to say that that was like an early experiment we made uh, with AI and a lot of that thinking is baked into Sublime, which we'll be launching in the next couple of months. So fascinating. I think that stuff is super, super cool. And I, I think just the limits of what we can do with something like ChatGPT or just AI in general is endless. And we're only barely scraping the surface of what we can uncover with that. Like ChatGPT as it stands today is like such a basic version of that. And, you know, like you, the application that you found with this Ask Sorry page is, is just, I, I think, so much more powerful than what people are imagining with ChatGPT. So super cool. Sorry, are there any final thoughts you have on Sublime or on just decentralized search or content curation in general that we have not covered that you, you want to make sure listeners can learn today? Not, I mean, I would, I would just say that I think that it's like time that we raise the bar when it comes to like what we expect from the internet. I, I think there, there was this uh, post sitting around the web on the age of average and how everything looks the same. And I think the same is true for how we interact online. And, you know, I'm excited to share like one different like point of view on, on how that can manifest. But, you know, I, I hope a lot more people do it because I don't, I don't think it's about like hating on what's there and complaining about what's there. I think it's about 
presenting like provocative alternatives. And yeah, that's certainly what I've, what I've spent the last year working on. And I've, you know, now I've got a chip on my shoulder to make it work. We deserve more and, and we can have our cake and eat it too, is what you're saying. And I'm totally on board with that. So last thing, sorry, on every episode, we end with a quick little game. It's just a rapid fire word association game. So I've got uh, about 50 slips of paper in this tin here in front of me, and I'm going to draw 10 of these at random. Um, these are all the words on these slips of paper are all misused or overused words in Web3. So they should all sound pretty familiar to you if you spent a lot of time on Twitter at all. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the word off the piece of paper and you're going to say the first word that comes to mind. <laughs> okay. The only rule is you can't say the same word I just said and you can't say the same word for every word I say. So you can't just like answer startup-y <laughs> with like every word I say. Uh, cool. Does that make sense? Let's try it out. <laughs> okay, great. So I've got 10 now in front of me. Um, and the first one is identity. Uh, I think about uh, pseudonymous. Nice. Media. I think about like knowledge, information versus knowledge when I think of media. Okay. Deflationary. I think buzzword. Privacy. Overblown. Zero knowledge. Infinite knowledge. Composable. Legos. Concentric circles. Um, I think like visuals. Community. The only thing that matters. Merkle tree. Have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and last one, uh, layer two. Uh, more layers. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Good job. You did, believe it or not, you did a great job. Some people really struggle through that game, but we got through it pretty fast. So awesome. I hope you enjoyed it and it wasn't too painful. <laughs> oh my gosh, that was painful. I was like, what? Oh no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I have to put like, what am I saying? Um, but that was <laughs> You did great. So last thing, sorry, before you go, tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you. Um, and also where people can go to learn more about Startupy and uh, make sure that they're aware when Sublime launches and how they can sign up for that. Yeah, for sure. So, um, well, Sublime will be launching soon, but the best way to get notified is to follow Startupy. Uh, I send out a weekly newsletter at startupy.substack.com. You can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Sariazut. You can also follow Startupy on Twitter, twitter.com slash startupyworld. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you listeners for tuning in and we'll be back again next Thursday with another episode of Rehash. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Rehash. Rehash is hosted by Diana Chen, produced and edited by Ellie Dots and Tyler Internet, and sponsored by Lens, Empire Wallet, and NFT.Storage. Rehash is also supported by Rehash DAO, a community of NFT holders who curate our guest lineup each season. To get involved, head over to our website at rehashweb3.xyz and collect this episode as an NFT. Anyone who collects an episode becomes a part of Rehash DAO and will be able to nominate guests for future seasons. Voting rights are reserved for our guests, sponsors, and OG crowdfund supporters. And to learn more about how to become a guest or sponsor, go to rehashweb3.xyz slash podcast. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at RehashWeb3 or on Lens at rehash.lens. <laughs>